Hey everybody, this is Shane from Strange Uncles. What you're about to hear is a little bonus sampling of what we have to offer on Patreon. Not the whole thing, but just a snippet, just to get some enthusiasm behind you. So if you want to become a Patreon member, you can at patreon.com slash strangeuncles. Open the gates. This is a fourth hand production. Looking on the tree, I notice a two cigarette like shape things with the hump in the middle. I said, What the hell is that? One stay in the air, and the other one is coming down, down, down. I start looking for marks. I never see a UR or NASA or something written on it, no. Nothing, I didn't see anything on it. But still I was thinking that probably experimenting vehicle from United States. believe in ghosts and the paranormal? Now, are they are they UFOs or are they like some crazy experimental, you know, governmental I don't know, know, planes man. that they're building? And police in Española are catching more than just criminals. They're catching images of what they believe are ghosts. Weird animal-like creature that was shot. Wolf-like creature that just stood out in some odd ways. Welcome to Strange Uncles, everyone. I am Shane. And I am John. I am Josh. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's only January. So if you're this confused this early in the year, then we're <laughs> fucked, Bob. Oh, man. Usually, it's not January. It's December forty second. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> twenty twenty will never end. No. It's, uh, man, it usually this time of year everything slows down for me and I get a break. But it's just been like nonstop. So my my mind is melted. Yeah, I asked one of your coworkers. I'm like, so now that holiday seasons are over, is it mellowing out a little bit? And they're like, no. <laughs> no. just, just flat out just like no, no no like explanation just like a like dead inside no yeah so we usually get we get the week between christmas and new year's off and so like my mind melted in the fact of i had nothing to do in that sense and and that was nice but then when i came back to work it was just like what if the fuck is going on just so much of everything been yeah. wild yeah, likewise. I think it's the same thing on my side too. And again, you know, this one, this episode, no matter when it's released, and we're not going to tell you because we're not sure. Um, <laughs> it has been. You'll get bit, it when you get it. Yeah, right. We try to record this thing like three times over, and and entirely my fault. Work, uh, my real life, what I get paid for, has slowly taken over my hobbies, and I'm not too uh, not too thrilled about that. But you know, hopefully, you get into some kind of some kind of steadfast platform here shortly. So. Anyway, but hopefully you guys are good. 
Um, like I said, we're in the January time frame, real time. Uh, this will probably hopefully be January, at least for Patreons, um, if not after. But uh, despite everything else, you know, of course, UFOs are still in the news. Um, I don't know if you guys caught, and this will be old news when it's out, but did you catch the whole uh, Lou Elizondo? Like he's out along with another guy for um, the Academy of the Stars. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think we said this a couple weeks ago, but yeah, uh, Lou is on the news episode. But yeah, Lou isn't a part of To the Stars anymore. Uh, but I think he's doing something with Sean Cahill or Cahill mm-hmm. or however you say his last name. But I, that's like a, that's as as far as I know about it is. I think he's doing some stuff with Sean Cahill, and he's not involved with To the Stars. And that's where my knowledge of that. That, that's where that ends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, yeah. And I think we did mention that. It's just weird. You know, the whole the UFO is still in the news. Obviously, there's a new regime coming in. You know, everybody's hoping that they're going to spill the beans on whatever we seem to know about UFOs. So in case the listeners haven't already gathered, this episode is about UFOs. So mainly being one of the more famous right ones. So, do what? Nothing. Go on. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> So um, this was kind of something that uh, Mitchell, by the way, on Patreon, thank you for being a Patreon member. He's also a, a friend. He had mentioned this. He had sent links, you know, like sometime early in the year. And I, I caught him and I never really thought nothing of it. Um, but then gradually I thought, well, you know, this is interesting because then the more you delve into it, it kind of got bigger and bigger. So I don't know if you guys have any insight to it before we kind of roll into the bulk of the story. Um, I suffice to say that, you know, like I said, I know everything about it now. And before I had no clue it was even there. So mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm really excited. I don't really know very much about this one. So I'm happy to learn something new. Yeah, it's one of the it's one of Canada's most famous UFO incidents. So they even made a commemorative coin, like a legit coin. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I've got that in the write-up. It, it is kind of funny, you know. I mean, it's not as big as Roswell, but it just might as well be as far as the Canads go. But mm-hmm. um, but for a little bit of insight on it, you know, we just had a, a quick thing, just speaking as Americans in general, because I know that a lot of the stuff that we cover, we tend to cover things that we know in our country, right? You know, give or take some of these bigger things like, you know, Loch Ness Monster, some of these larger that are around the world. Of course, they've gained fame over the over the years, over the centuries. Um, but even as Americans, we kind of get pigeonholed into just knowing what's kind of around us. You know, we've all heard of Roswell. We all know Roswell exists and that it, it happened in one form or another. But one thing I never knew about was this example here of one of the biggest UFO Canadian cases ever. Like if you have to step Roswell next to this case – um, Roswell really doesn't have a foot to stand on because there wasn't any eyewitness accounts other than just what they thought they found, what the rancher thought they found, the military coming into it. It's just very interesting how it kind of weaves out. You know, now this is over 50 years old and it's still a thing. So I think this is kind of cool just to say, hey, you know, this is a Canadian version of Roswell, I guess, right? You know, for the most part. Sure. Yeah. But so for all you strangers listening, um, that's what we're going to unfold. We're going to unfold one of the biggest Canadian UFO stories ever. Um, and again, like I said, I'll personally admit I never heard of it. I know John mentioned he did. Josh mentioned they did, but not in depth. And so once we start digging into the research, it just kind of got into got us down the rabbit hole a bit. So this is a question we have for you guys. What really occurred near Falcon Lake in the spring of 1967 to a one Stefan Michelak? An amateur miner who just got caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, or did he? 
So we're going to dive in and we're going to start unpacking the story of the Falcon Lake Instant. Open the gates. So just to cover some basic background of UFOs being spotted in Canada, because, you know, we're going to focus on this story, but the reality is Canada had, <laughs> well, with the counts that I found, there's actually more UFO sightings or just as many in Canada as there ever was to this present day in the United States, which, you know, I find interesting. But Canada's huge, right? Like it takes up a, a pretty a pretty good-sized landmass for the most part, you know. Yeah, but, it's equal to or bigger than the U.S. Yeah, exactly. Um, we're kind of going to pinpoint a little bit in the Manitoba area because that's the area that's populated. There's a lot of Canadian uh, Canada area that's not as populated. But the Manitoba area is kind of where we're going to focus on, and that's where the Falcon Lake incident actually occurred. So you would be surprised to find out that there actually are quite a few of these instances. Um, one of the earliest ones that we came across was actually reported in uh, 1792 when two explorers, David Thompson and Andrew Davy, spotted what David said was as large as the moon and just 300 yards away from us, struck the river ice like a massive jelly and was dashed with innumerable luminous pieces and instantly expired. Since then, Canadian UFO researchers have gathered over 20,000 sightings in the Manitoba area alone that cannot be explained. And two main government-sponsored UFO studies popped up in the early 50s to gather research and investigate the phenomenon, one by the name of Project Second Story and the other by the name of Project Magnet. Both of these programs were short-lived, mainly due to a man by the name of Wilbert B. Smith. Kind of sounds like an asshole, Wilbert. <laughs> I know. Anybody is going to go with Wilbert, not Will. Okay, whatever. <laughs> I go by Wilbert. Okay, buddy. All right. <laughs> um, Wilbert, was, he was an electronic specialist, but was known to firmly believe that the UFO sightings were alien-based, and he claimed to even have had contact with the entities, which, needless to say, the higher-ups above him did not share that same viewpoint. So add the Cold War era into the mix when these projects were in their prime and the American presence in Canada at the time, and things start to get pretty murky pretty quick. Yeah, and you know, something interesting about that too, you know, and everybody talks about this, no, now it's UAP, right? But, you know, UFO phenomena, that there really are people on different sides of the gate, whether they think it's an alien background or they think it's a government of some sort, you know, and mm. there's staunch people that either they sit on this side or they sit on this side and i just i find that funny <laughs> you know dependent and back in the day evidently you know if you're screaming aliens according to you know this wilbur b smith um that probably wasn't the, the best thing to do because i mm, i don't think the higher-ups necessarily like that right but yeah anyway just maybe makes it seem like you're not as grounded in reality i mean yeah. but you kind of gotta you, you you definitely have to cross out all earthly possibilities before you jump to the alien conclusion. Absolutely. It's the same thing in anything, whether it's ghosts or anything else. Try to look at it from every single aspect, and when you exhaust all these efforts, then maybe you can look then, at the other stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I think people put the fucking cart between the in front of the horse more than more than once, but mm -hmm. anyway. Wait, that's not how that goes? The, <laughs> wait, the horse before the cart? Wait, that's how it's supposed to go. Cart before the horse. It's got to be your bull and your ass. 
That's a time. I'm that's a time you fucking quote. <laughs> anyway. anyway, carry on. But uh, but anyway, we're not here to unravel the Canadians' entire history of UFO sightings, so we digress. But we did want to mention that you know it's a thing, evidently. So let's go back in time and focus a bit on one particular sighting that affected a Polish man and his family, along with everyone that they encountered for years to come. So a quick side note as far as what we reference for the research, because you know it, it actually. It took some digging on some of these things, being that, you know, it's Canada and being that it was 50-plus years ago. We researched several short reports written through the years from various Canadian media that we found, um, along with an Unsolved Mystery episode that aired, which I think we're going to put that on Patreon. I did manage to find that specific episode. Maybe I'll link that on Patreon for all you guys to watch. Um, They do a very accurate rendition of what happened, which is kind of cool. We also gathered police reports, official government interviews, but most of the info we use came from a book written by one Chris Rutkowski in 2017 that not only includes a 40-page booklet that Stephen, uh, Stefan Michalak, the maiden witness, wrote in 68, but also a memoir that Mr. Michalak's son and the viewpoint of the author himself, which ties nicely into the whole story and together. And the book actually is, is a great book to read. It's, it's easy. It's straightforward. Got a lot of stuff in it. We didn't cover half the things that I found in the book. It's just crazy. So... So bear with us a bit as we explain a little backstory, uh, the history of the main character first. So this really kind of helps paint the picture of who Stefan was. And honestly, that's the one takeoff I did after reading the book is that, you know, when you talk about your character witnesses that maybe experience whether it's a haunting or a UFO sighting or they see Bigfoot, your character and what who that character is really – adds most of the the witness of the story, right? If you got some guy that's a fucking crackpot, nobody's going to listen to you. You got another guy or a group or whatever have you that has no interest at all into, you know, like they don't even care. They don't even believe in this stuff. But it occurred to them and they have no, they're not going to get anything out of it other than ridicule really at the end of the day. Those are the people that I've always been curious about. And those are the ones that always kind of lend a grain of truth to say, you know what, they saw something. They would have had to seen something, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't have put themselves in that situation. Yeah. Like, why would you subject you and your family to all that ridicule and, yeah, just everything yeah, I that mean, comes along with it? Especially knowing that it's going to torpedo your credibility and your reputation. Because, I mean, especially back in the day, that meant a lot to people. You know what yeah. I mean? Oh, yeah. Well, and I don't, think an, I don't think an immigrant also – I don't think immigrants usually try and – get too much attention focused on them. You know, they're just trying to live their life uh, with probably least amount of attention possible to them just so they can just chill. And yeah. Live. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's a fair statement, especially back in the day, you know, well, and considering, I mean, we're going to get into it, but some of the stuff this dude went through, I'm sure he definitely was not an yeah. attention seeker. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. You right. go through world war two and you immigrate to another country. You're like, fucking leave me alone and let me yep. just <laughs> yeah. raise my kids and just like live. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, what's funny about this. So we're going to get a little bit of the history of, uh, Stefan a bit, because I, I don't know, we feel like that's kind of important to paint the picture. So. Right. <clears throat> so Stefan Michalak was born in 1916 in Poland near a small town where his father was the chief of police. Um, if we skip ahead to uh, World War II, which broke out in 1939, uh, we find Stefan was serving uh, with the intelligence section of the military police in Poland. Uh, his beat took him to the eastern reaches of the country along the Polish-Ukrainian border, 
where he was responsible for uncovering covert activities by pro-Soviet uh, sympathizers who had been smuggling arms and stirring up the uh, stirring up communist sympathizers. Hmm. Uh, when hostilities reached a climax, the military was assailed from both sides. <laughs> I get it. Okay, I was like, oh, okay. Like, the German what? juggernaut. <laughs> 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 oh, you know, it was climaxing. Anyway, right, right. I, I got it. Uh, the German juggernaut in the West um, and the growing problem of Soviet Russia from the East. When the regular Polish army was defeated, members went underground and started factions to fight the Nazis and try and beat them at their own game. Uh, Stefan had a loyalty to Poland, which he never stepped back from, which is kind of to be expected, I think. Right, right. Um, and uh, he he was still loyal even after being captured and spending a year and a half in Gross Rosen concentration camp. Uh, and uh, I mean, this is a little bit off topic, but uh, there's a Twitter account from the Auschwitz Museum um, that you guys should follow. It's really interesting. Huh. Um, speaking of concentration camps, but anyway, um, so end of the war, Poland's now a Soviet state and the Polish government went into exile um, and seemed to just kind of give in to basically being occupied, being part of the Eastern Bloc. Um, that's when Stephen started doubting his loyalty to his mother country. He soon met his future wife, who had spent 14 months in another concentration camp and married her in 1946, having their first child soon after. Due to the Soviet regime's brutality in post-war years, Stefan found no other choice but to escape Poland in 1948, bringing him to Allied-occupied Germany, where he was absorbed into the U.S. Army as a former partisan, finding his way eventually into Saskatchewan. He lived with a Canadian family while waiting to finally be reunited with his wife and two children nine years later. Jeez, that's now insane. that the family, yeah, isn't it a oh. fucking decade? That's Talk. fucking wild. Some of the shit uh, these people had to put up with back in the day is just crazy. Yeah, and post-war Poland was not a fucking pretty picture. No, but, I can imagine. Um, so now that the family was together again and the remnants of the war in the rearview mirror, Stefan moved his wife, his two sons, and his daughter to Winnipeg, Manitoba, and found a job working as a mechanic for the Inland Cement Company. Uh, it seems that things were finally coming together after years of struggle and strife, and Stefan and his family could now finally live a life of appreciation, prosperity, and normalcy. Or so it seemed. Dun, dun, dun. And here's the thing, too, about this guy. Um, and this is some of the accounts that, uh, again, I took out of the book and accounts directly from his son, Stan, who at the time that the incident happened, Stan was nine, you know, so he kind of recounts what was going on. But, uh, for example, when they did the Unsolved Mysteries in the early 90s and they came and Stefan was part of that. Like they went to him and got his story and had an actor that looked like him, all this stuff. But one thing that floored the producers and, and everybody on the Unsolved Mysteries crew wasn't as much his story about the UFO encounter. It was his stories about the war and what he went through and how it, what it, what happened to him. And like, they're just on the edge of their seat. Like to him, that was like, he was just, this guy's had a life. Um, you know, it doesn't, of course it probably didn't help to add the Falcon Lake incident into that said life. Right. Anyway. Yeah. But with that being said, so in the spring of 1967, on May 19th, Stefan caught a Greyhound bus to explore an area about 80 miles east of Winnipeg. He found himself to be a bit of an amateur geologist, studying and research in the field of geology, mining, and minerals. 
He had quite a few years of this hobby under his belt, and even went as far as to put down a couple of mining claims. He wanted to take this one particular long weekend uh, to travel to what they call the White Shell area in Canada, uh, where he had some luck in the past finding veins. He arrived at his destination at Falcon Lake and checked in the motel he had booked for the night. Taking some time that evening to study his maps, check his compass and other equipment, he planned on waking up before sunrise the next day to hike into the area he had excitedly mapped out. Leaving the hotel at about 5.30 a.m. the next morning, he packed a lunch in his equipment, which consisted of a hammer, a map, a tape measure, a compass, goggles, and a paper and a pencil. As May, he made his way across the transcontinental highway and into the bush. <laughs> God, we got to grow up. That's funny. Um, around nine, he had found his area and began to explore. The area was located near a bog along a stream flowing in the southwest direction. He found the rock formation nearly uh, nearby interesting, uh, which was the same one he, he saw previous when he was out there. Uh, and he heard geese stir a bit when they discovered his presence, but soon they all settled down. Around 11, he decided to eat his lunch, and around 12, he began chipping away at the vein he had found. He made a reference in a soon-to-be-written pamphlet that it was a fairly clear day, good visibility, and with some clouds of the west and the sun high in the sky. It was then he heard the geese from earlier go crazy. They're over there cackling and sounding fearful. The sound of the geese brought him away from the task at hand, and then he saw them. So this is just a note for the listeners real quick as we go into here. Um, so I mentioned the portion uh, about his 40-page pamphlet that was in the book of the research I did. So some of the stuff that we're going to come from here, we'll let you know, like this next little chapter we're going to read, came directly word for word from the pamphlet. Um, keep in mind it was originally written in Polish, so some of the wording is a bit different, but it does lay out the initial contact in Stefan's own words. Two cigar-shaped objects with humps on them about halfway down in the sky. They appeared to be descending and glowing with an intense scarlet glare. As these objects came closer to the earth, they became more oval-shaped. They came down at a constant speed, keeping a constant distance between them, appearing to be as one inseparable unit, yet each separate from each other. Suddenly, the furthest of the two objects, farthest from my point of vision, stopped dead in the air while its companion slipped down closer and closer to the ground and landed squarely on the flat top of a rock, about 160 feet away from me. The object that had remained in the air hovered approximately 15 feet above me for about three minutes, then lifted skyward again. As it ascended, its color began to change from bright red to an orange shade, then go gray tone. Finally, it was just about to disappear behind the gathering clouds. It again turned bright orange. The craft, if I may be allowed to call it a craft, had appeared and disappeared in such a short time that it was impossible to estimate the length of the time it had remained visible. My astonishment at the fear of the unusual sight that I had just witnessed dulled my senses and made me lose all realization of time. I cannot describe or estimate the speed of the ascent because I have seen nothing in the world that moves so swiftly, noiselessly, without a sound. So here's the thing. So here's a quick, this always set me off and maybe it's just me being a stickler, but this, his whole account, right? Makes sense. He's trying to explain it the best he can. But then, you know, when you get into stuff like this, you know, it, it hovered approximately 15 feet above me. You know, it was exactly 160 feet. I, when you hear accounts like that, I'm like, all right, fucker, either you got great perception or you know what I mean? Yeah, um, I mean, I guess those were just like ballparks, maybe. But I mean, uh, didn't he yeah. make didn't he make a statement in in there that said like it happened so fast almost that he couldn't 
Yeah, he even, does. He does kind of disclose that. I'm just, and you know, so this that's kind of funny that he says like, uh, "It happened so fast, I can't really give you uh, details." But it's 15 like, feet. detail, a detailed <laughs> description. Right. Yeah, but here you go. But I mean, yeah. he was in the military and like true, probably trained to be able to quickly estimate distances because you know your life kind of depends on that when you're yeah. when people are shooting at you. Yeah, he did um, say yeah. it had appeared and disappeared in such a short time that it was impossible to estimate the length of time it had remained visible. Okay. Yeah, I mean that. Well, all yeah. that being said, like I have terrible fucking spatial cognition, so like I like don't see a difference between six feet and fifteen feet. You know what I mean? Um, Especially with COVID, I think I'm six feet away. I'm actually standing twenty five feet away. So <laughs> yeah. Well. um after calming down a bit and regaining some sense, uh, some of his senses, Stefan realized he still had his hammer in his hand and the goggles that he used to protect his eyes still on. He noticed colors were changing from red to gray red to light gray, and then to the color of plain stainless steel. He noticed an opening at the top of the craft where he could see purple light pouring out. He waited by his work area, watching and gathering info in his mind of what was happening. He noticed the wafts of warm air coming from the craft, along with the whirring and whizzing of what sounded like a tiny motor running extremely fast. He thought then, not seeing anyone, anything or anyone, just the object sitting on the formation with a purple hue surrounding it, that getting closer may lead to an explanation of what exactly it may be. He slowly moved toward the craft, looking for markers or symbols of some kind on the outside that could explain its origin. He immediately assumed it was possibly an American spy craft of some sort, good guess, um, but saw nothing to indicate such a thing. Steven got within 60 feet of the craft, again his account, and the lights that it was bringing, and the lights that it was bringing out hurt his eyes to look at directly, so he flipped down his goggles. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't sound like it's happening so fast that he can't yeah, really right? tell how long it was. <laughs> Sounds like it took a couple minutes. Yeah, it sounded like yeah. it was at least a substantial amount of time. Uh, yeah. I you mean, know. I imagine something happening in like 1, 1,000, 2, 1,000, 3, right. 1,000, right. and it's over to be like, whoa, what the fuck? But yeah. like, yeah, you're looking at this thing like, damn, that's super bright. I'm going to put my goggles on and then I'm going to like very, think very about over. I'm going to think about some things. I'm going to move like that's that's a significant amount of time. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I I get maybe what he means is like it was all overwhelming and he has no idea how long it actually lasted and maybe he yeah. just didn't word it very well, but like, For yeah. sure. And, and, that, yeah, <laughs> and I mean, that, when yeah. you're in the moment, you're not thinking of time. That, absolutely. You know, and I get that. I think, you know, it's a 50-50 on both sides. I will say that uh, a quick note on this. So one thing that I was confused when I was reading, and I, I had to go back and I had to read it again because I, I didn't make sense with the whole goggles thing, right? So um, how he described him was just – it was confusing at first. So this is basically what had happened. Um, it wasn't until later in the book – I was almost actually done with it. They kind of explained what was what was going on. Uh, it was an interview that was performed by Corporal Davis uh, right after the incident who worked for the RCMP, which, by the way, we're not going to say it all. But you know, when we do in this thing, RCMP stands for Royal Canadian Mounted Police. But the in Mounties. that yeah, – The Mounties. It's a Saskatchewan. But in that interview, Stefan explained that they were a set of welding goggles from work. So one set was a clear set that they do their work, and then the second set they flip down when they do the welding because that was what he did at Inland Cement. So that – otherwise, I was like, this makes no sense. Who has a fucking pair of goggles that can do that? 
So I was just, I don't know, I was a bit confused on it, but that explains it. So they were, they were welding goggles, basically. So we're going to continue on this a bit. We're going to take a quick break, and then uh, we're going to kind of keep capturing his main accounts and uh, move forward in the story. So stand by, everybody. All right. Welcome back, everybody. So uh, let's go back into Stevan's pamphlet a bit and read his own words again um, from like we did previous. Then I heard voices. They sounded human, although somewhat muffled by the sounds of the motor and the rush of the air that was continuously coming out from somewhere inside. I was able to make out two distinct voices, one with a higher pitch than the other. The latest discovery added to the excitement, and I was sure that the craft was of earthly origin. I came even closer and beckoned inside, (laughs) which I find funny. Okay, Yankee boys, having trouble? Come on out, and we'll see what we can do about it. There was no answer, no sign from within. I was at a loss and perplexed. I didn't know what to do next. But then, more to encourage myself than anything else, I addressed the voices in Russian, and there's no answer. I tried again in German, Italian, French, and Ukrainian. Still no answer. I walked closer to the craft and found myself directly in the beam of light. It was too much for my eyes, so I placed the green lenses over my goggles and stuck my head inside. The inside was a maze of lights, direct beams running in horizontal and diagonal paths, and a series of flashing lights, it seemed to me, were working in a random fashion with no particular order of sequence. Again, I stepped back and awaited some reaction from the craft, and as I did this, I took more notes on the thickness of the walls of the craft. They were about 20 inches thick at the cross-section. Then came the first sign of the motion since the craft touched down. Two panels slid over the opening, and the third piece dropped over them from above. This completely closed off the opening in the side of the craft. Then I noticed a small screen pattern on the side of the craft. It seemed to be some sort of a ventilation system. The screen openings appeared to be 3 sixteenths of an inch of diameter. Again, boy, he's really specific with some of this shit, right? Anyway. Yeah. Um, I touched the side of the craft with my glove, and it was hot to the touch. I noticed I burnt my glove when I touched the side of the craft. All of a sudden, the craft tilted slightly leftward, and I turned, and I felt scorching pain around my chest. My shirt and my undershirt were afire. A sharp beam of heat had shot from the craft. I tore off my shirt and undershirt and threw them to the ground. My chest was severely burnt. When I looked back at the ship, I felt a sudden rush of air around me. The craft was rising above the treetops. It began to change color and shape, following much of the same pattern as a sister ship when it had returned to the sky. Soon the craft had disappeared, gone without a trace. The Hmm. description of that kind of reminds me, it sounds like a drone. Yeah. Like, even if he heard voices in there, it Hmm. could have been some type of... I mean, I guess I don't know why they'd be communicating with the drone if no one was in there. Well, if it, maybe if it's controlled by like a, an AI uh, th- type thing. Yeah, maybe. And so. they're talking to it, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, in, in 1967, though, you think, well, not saying we didn't well, have shit. I'm not saying. Okay. First of all, <laughs> uh, black, black budget technology is usually about uh, 40 years ahead of. Uh, what we see in the normal, regular, everyday world. Agreed. And uh, that's also assuming it's man-made. Yeah, I'm not even saying it's uh, a man-made drone. I'm just saying that sounds drone-like. You know, I sometimes think, you know, it could be possible alien civilizations. That's all UFOs are, like yeah, being manned remote control or remotely from god knows where right given right given the vast distances they would have to travel that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah but um we should probably note though that after this event and years after he never once stated that he thought that whatever he saw was alien related 
So also we get into what happened to him after almost every single interview that he had, even the initial one with Corporal Davis, his story, aside from some pinpointed questions that Steve Stefan did not detail in his pamphlet was the same story across the board. So he was pretty consistent in yeah. his, which, which says a lot because when people are fabricating something, little details change little thing yep. you know they forget this they forget that or yeah yeah well, I mean, when you're lying yep. it's hard to remember all the lies you said right right yeah so and we need to take a second to explain the pamphlet we keep referencing so after the event stefan became exhausted retelling a story over and over which obviously <clears throat> it was recommended by a family friend that uh, he should write down his experience and although he wasn't really a writer stefan dabbled in poetry when he was young but never went further than that Add to the fact that the only language he was comfortable writing in was Polish, so that makes it a bit tough to translate verbatim. In the summer of '67, he wrote the book and pamphlets. Or, yeah, and pamphlets were published with the bill being a little under one thousand dollars, as Stefan's son Stan writes. Yeah, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. It was he was talking about? He remember seeing a, a a bill or an invoice for everything, and it was, it was like nine something. So, I mean, a thousand bucks in 67 is a fucking lot. Yeah. I mean, you figure I, and it was never said, I could never find anywhere like how many copies were published, right? Like how many did they uh-huh. draft up? First, I, 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 I feel like I misunderstood. Now that I see that again, I, I, it, that's how much it cost him to do all that. To, to I was do, thinking yeah. he was charging a thousand bucks for a book. Oh, gotcha. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, well, are you fucking crazy? This better be that's, the best. So it is a cash grab. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. I just totally misunderstood uh, that. But so Stan Michalak never knew how many, but guaranteed that no money was ever made from the small booklets. And within a year, they were all gone and never republished. God, could you okay. imagine finding one of those? Oh, that would be yeah. Amazing. That would be pretty fucking, fucking interesting. Badass. Um, so back to the story. Uh, Stefan obviously was bewildered and definitely taken aback, as anyone would be. Uh, after this incident, after effects from the contact happened immediately. First off, there was the odor. The odor of melted wiring and sulfur. Mmm, sounds demonic. <laughs> uh, seemed to come from every pore of his body. Then the violent vomiting uh, and dizziness that came with that causing him to really fear whatever he had just encountered. He knew he had to get out of the area and quick before he either passed out and couldn't find his way back or worse yet, die in the Canadian wilderness with no one finding his body for weeks. These were all legitimate worries, so he gathered up what he could find of his tools and began to hike out. He did note that when he grabbed his compass, it was whirling around, not being able to dial in on a direction. Vomiting the entire way out of the woods, his head pounding and not being able to focus, uh, and the electrical burning smell that never seemed to go away. He really thought that he was at death's door, but he did find the highway again and realized he had come out about a mile from where he went in. Uh, A Mountie did find him wandering down the highway, which was uh, Corporal Davis, who we discussed previously. And Davis tried to make contact with him, but Stefan told him to go away because he was concerned of possible radiation poisoning, which kind of makes sense given his uh, symptoms. Yeah, yeah, kind of in the state Um, he's in, too. And that's interesting when everybody gets involved, like after the story gets out, um, then it's a fucking snowball going downhill. It's crazy from that point. Well, going back to, John, what you said, thinking it sounded kind of like a drone. Like it could have also been like, just like automated, like defense 
uh, mm-hmm. system too, you know, that fried him. Yeah. Like, like, oh, something's climbing around on me, zap. Well, exactly. that, that's kind of, and you know what, too, add to the fact that, you know, and we mentioned it briefly, but the Cold War was a fucking thing. And so, you know, Canada had a bunch of American presence, a bunch of other presidents from other countries. Like, it, it was, people were legitimately worried. And if you're going to have some kind of hidden tech flying around trying to test it, I, that would probably be an opportune era to do that in. So, you know, aliens aside, right? But so let's get back to Stefan's original account again. Um, and again, this is his words uh, out of the pamphlet. Returning to my room, I packed and checked out only to find that I had four hours to wait for the bus. I felt very sick, very, very sick, and all cold and hot and cold again. I put on a sweater and an overcoat, but the chills kept recurring. I left for the bus long before the bus was due to arrive, not wanting to mix with people because of the possibility of my spreading radiation. I waited in the background. As I sat on a tree stump on the boulevard, suffering pain and the stench and the colored spots all around me, I began to reflect upon my life. Flashing through my mind were horrors of the war with its total disregard of human life, its valor, and its cowardice. I recalled instances when I had closer brushes with death and survived. This thought comforted me, and I felt that somehow I'll put... I'll, I'll put my through the present heroin experience. I'll make it through everything. After what seemed like eternity, the bus arrived. I boarded it and gave my ticket to the driver. He looked at me the way one looks at a drunk. <laughs> like people look at me every now and again. I could almost feel what was going through his mind, but he had no idea how utterly wrong he was. My eldest son, Mark, met me at the Winnipeg bus depot at 10.15 p.m. that evening and took me directly to the Miscordia Hospital. A doctor examined my burns on my chest and gave me a sedative. He asked me how I got burnt. Excuses flashed through my mind at this point, and I told him that I had been hit by exhaust from an aeroplane. And by the way, he does say aeroplane, which I find funny. At this point, I must explain the reason for contradicting the recent events and avoid confusing the reader. So the doctor who treated me was of Chinese origin, and while being a fine and competent physician, I am sure he was not too well versed in the English language, and neither am I. I felt that there could be some misunderstanding, and what's more, I did not feel up to reciting the whole story just then. So we wanted to read directly from Stefan's pamphlet to explain the initial encounter, because obviously that is the best first-hand account we have. Uh, from here, we're going to lay down some quick notes of what happened to Stefan after and then get into another side of his, this story. First off, Stefan had health issues for years after the incident. He went to various local doctors and even traveled to a cancer institute to get uh, specialty treatment. Funny thing with the Cancer Institute, in August of 1968, Stefan traveled to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. He paid for it out of his own pocket. It wasn't paid for through the Canadian medical insurance. He spent two weeks there staying in a motel across the street. And after tests were done, he waited over three weeks for his results with no word. He complained to his local doctor about it, then got Capro involved, who appealed to APRO for help. And just for reference, CAPRO is the Canadian Phenomenon Research Organization, and APRO is the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, who both got involved due to how big the story at that point had become, among other organizations that involved themselves in UFO research. So eventually, ufologist John Keel got involved, and as a result, Dr. Berthold Schwartz, a psychiatrist and ufologist, assisted by sending a letter inquiry to the Mayo Clinic. In April 1st, 1969, they heard back. Yeah, it takes that much muscle to finally get some response back. And this was what the response was. Quote, 
I have checked through our registration desk and I find that we had never had a patient by the name registered at the Mayo Clinic by that name. This obviously started the believers in the case of scream cover-up. However, Schwartz tried a different method and asked Stefan to sign a simple medical records release form and forwarded that to the Mayo Clinic in January of 1970. The report came back almost immediately. Quoted, Mechelak had been found to be in good health, but with neurodermatitis and simple syncope. Uh, basically, I didn't know what that was, but a fainting spells and cerebral blood pressure losses. Uh, the syncope was suggested as having to do with hyperventilation or impaired cardiac output, unquote. So which Stephen would have heart problems later on in his life, which we mentioned, the report goes on to explain his sores, lesions that pop up randomly, which happens at the same time as he blacks out, loss of hearing and pain. And to add to all this, he did have an incident at work months prior where he became disorientated and his entire body swelled to the point of the cuffs on his shirt was cutting his circulation off as well as boarding the line of blacking out and serine pain throughout his body. His works, uh, live-in nurse, chalked it up as allergic reactions to something uh, with no one knowing what really had happened or what had gone on because he had no contact with anything that was different. So, you know, and this wasn't the first time. This continued all the time throughout his life for the next, like, 10 years after. Damn. Um, when Stefan returned home after being released from the hospital right after the initial incident, it was a long road of recovery for about three weeks. Uh, his doctor would visit periodically to give him medicine for the burns, as well as checking on his overall health. For weeks after, Stefan could not keep food with any substance down. Um, he lost almost 30 pounds in a three-week time frame. Damn, that's a hell of a diet. Uh, which scared the hell out of not only Stefan, but his family, who was watching him get sicker and sicker. Now let's get into the mob and the aftermath once the story began to be circulated, mainly by the visiting doctors. For the next two years, Stefan was barraged by members of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and the Royal Canadian Air Force, government officials and several civilians. The numbers of government department and officials who were involved is staggering. With that being said, some initial officials that reached out to Michalak from around day two after the incident were not very welcome. Stefan's wife, always being paranoid about who would come knocking on their door for info, uh, tried to weed out the good from the bad. Within days, people were not only trying to get Stefan's time to retell the story, but they would interrogate his family, his neighbors, other town folk, just trying to get a sense of who Stefan was and whether or not the story was true. A few names from the very start of this are worth mentioning aside from the RCMP and the RCAF. Initially visiting a few days after Stefan got home, there is another notable individual that took interest uh, right from the beginning. Barry Thompson caught wind of the story and was one of the first persons not, or one of the first persons to not only try and get to the bottom of the story, but to try and get Stefan to special labs and doctors for testing. Barry truly believed his story, which is no surprise because Thompson was a member of APRO. Which, you know what? D- did that ring a bell like APRO and CAPRO? Do they still exist? I don't know if they do or not. I don't hear them or it's new to me, I guess. Um, a lot of these organizations tend to implode. Um, mm. I think APRO might still be around though. Curious. Yeah. And anyway. I think APRO, QFOS might be around as well. And that's the one that uh, Alan Hynek set up. And that's mm. the Center for UFO Studies. Gotcha. Gotcha. I always uh, wonder about that because it changed. QFOS, well, and, QFOS and APRO, I'm, 
I'm pretty sure they're still around in some in some regard. Way shame for or another. Yeah. Okay. Definitely not as big as MUFON. So I think MUFON always kind of like shadows all those other organizations. Yeah, for sure. That's be interesting. But anyway, well, with that being said, yeah, we start getting in the weeds here because now people are involved and <laughs> and it's a thing. All right, see you later, you sexy shit. <laughs> oh, jeez. <clears throat> ah, serious voice now. <clears throat> You've been listening to a fourth-hand production. <laughs>